You may be seated. A reading from the book of Luke. Three days later, they found Jesus sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was surprised at how much he knew and the answers he gave. Jesus didn't answer many questions. Depending on how you define the questions or what Jesus said, he only answered maybe three or four questions in all of the Gospels. You can stretch to seven if you look at or stretch the idea of what an answer is. Jesus didn't really answer questions, but what he did was ask them. You've heard me say this before. Jesus asks in the four Gospels roughly 300 questions of the people who follow him. Answers very few, but asks much. Like, who do you say that I am, is one of his great questions to the disciple Peter. And on and on, Jesus asks us about our faith. In a few minutes, you have had a chance to um, write down some questions for Peter or myself. Now, Peter, you should know, just finished his first semester at Yale Divinity School. And in a moment, he's going to speak a little bit, before we begin the question and answer session, on what it means for him to be called to the ministry. He did this for his Yale fellow Yale students, and so I asked him if he'd be willing to do an excerpt of it for us, because the idea of being called to ministry is sometimes elusive. Now, I want you to know that I will be very well-behaved during this, because it was maybe 21 years ago when Peter was four years old. I remember it exactly. He was seated over here during a children's moment, and I was telling a story. I was doing a great job, and the children were really wrapped with attention. I mean, I think I was telling the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and really they were following along, except I saw one child out of the corner of my eye right here, standing right here, doing something that metaphorically he continued to do for many years. He stood up while they all sat, and he faced out at you and did this. (laughs) Now, for those of you who are parents, you're familiar with that metaphorically and literally, and um, I will, however, not do that at all. But so I have invited um, Peter to share just a bit of what he shared with his uh, peers at Yale Divinity School and what it means for him to be called into the ministry. And then Meredith has been searching through some of your questions, and she'll come forward and, well, look at her smiling. So whatever she'll do. So, Peter. Thank you for that introduction. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Peter Kralvik Kircher. I'm Rich's son, um, and I just finished my first semester in seminary school. Um, and so he asked me to, to give a brief reflection on sort of my journey there. And of course, my, my story starts here in the church in First Congo. Um, I grew up coming to church every week, being very involved in the youth group. Um, And for those of you who knew me as a young child, uh, you might be surprised that I ended up in seminary. Um, And I'd like to say to anyone who had me in Sunday school as a young kid, I apologize. Uh, I was a bit of a menace. Um, And honestly, growing up, I didn't love going to church. Um, With somebody who has ADD, I was found it excruciatingly boring at times. 
my, sorry, Dad. Um, <laughs> but I just, I, I didn't particularly take to the church-going aspect. It was a chore for my mom to get me to church every Sunday. Um, but luckily, my parents showed me that being a Christian is a lot more than one hour in church on Sunday. It's, it's what you do in the days in between. And, uh, and one thing that uh, always stuck with me, it was fairly innocuous, but uh, my parents would oftentimes ask us at dinner, so where did you see God? And all they meant by that was, where did you see somebody today who did something unnecessarily nice, who went out of their way to be kind or generous or forgiving? And it was really simple, and we didn't always give great answers, but that was really looking back formative in my understanding of God, in that the works of God are so often enacted through human hands. Um, and that was, that was really important for my faith growing up. Um, and so, so growing up, I, I was always sort of a, a passionate person. I, I went at things with, with gusto. I was passionate about soccer. I was passionate about comedy. I was maybe a little too passionate about Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> but I didn't really have anything unifying these passions. I, they were sort of all over the place and didn't have anything tying them together. And I realized this in college and it, it bothered me. It, I wanted to sort of have some general direction that I was going with my life. And I was given a chance when I uh, was a junior in college to go abroad to Edinburgh, and I, I went there alone. I didn't know anybody going there, and while I made a lot of friends, um, I had a lot of time to sort of think and, and be with myself and to figure out who I am and what I wanted, and I spent a lot of time thinking and writing, and it, it by no means was it all figured out that semester, but I was sort of given a compass and given courage to sort of try and pursue and figure out what I felt like I was meant to do. Um, and the discernment was, was, took a couple of years. I didn't know what I wanted to do after I graduated and worked in technology for a while, but I found my way, uh, found my way eventually to seminary. And, and I, don't, I don't always feel like the, the most spiritually connected person. Um, I don't, that's not really what, what brought me to the seminary, that I don't feel special in that way, really. Um, but what I did find is that I, I care deeply about people and how we interact with each other in those days in between church, how we, how we treat one another, because those mundane acts of kindness are so often where I find God. Um, the works of God and the teachings of Christ are, are so often enacted through human hands. Um, and I'm still, still very, on, very early on in my journey. Um, I've only finished one semester. Um, and I may not know at the moment what my exact destination is, but um, I'm hopeful and confident that, uh, that I'm heading in the right direction. So, thank you. So, Peter, I have to tell you, <clears throat> your mother used to say to me that she is the most unchristian on Sunday mornings when she was trying to get you ready for, for uh, church. 
So um, for all you parents out there, look, it gets better. <laughs> uh, this is for, for Rich, but we'll start off easy. Um, and then we'll go from there. Um, but I'm also going to ask this question to Peter in a different way. But this is for you, Rich. It says, is there Christmas burnout for staff and clergy, and do you ever nap at your Monday morning staff meetings? <laughs> well, apparently Meredith submitted a question um, to this morning's uh, Ask the Pastor. Uh, I, is there Christmas burnout? And there isn't really for me. Because, as an aside, there is an, there's an unusual phenomenon that takes place, and, and it's happened almost all 20 years that I've been senior pastor, is that the week leading up to Christmas, all of you stop calling me. <laughs> really. I mean, I'm not, it's, it's true. People, people say to me, um, Rich, I've really got something I'd like to talk to you about, but I'm not going to call you that week before Christmas. And so the the first week of January is one of the busiest weeks that I have of the year because people have saved up all the things that they wish to chat about or to talk about or important church things as we close out the year. And so all of you sort of clear, I don't know about Meredith, but my schedule always gets sort of opened up because people seem to stop calling me. So I don't get Christmas burnout. And I tell you, I could lead those Christmas Eve services with the, the choir and the brass and the organ and the carols, I could lead 10 of those and not get burned out. They are just so lifting of my heart. But what that question also um, alludes to, maybe some of you, most of you probably don't know this, I am, and the staff knows this, maybe they just wanted me to acknowledge this, I am the world's best napper. I really am. I take a nap every day, at least 10 minutes at my desk. They love if they could peer in to see that I'm napping, to bang on my door really loud to see me sort of jump out of my chair. So yes, I do nap, but I never have napped at a staff meeting that I'm aware of. So. And I will share with you that one of my favorite Christmas presents was a shirt that says, I love Jesus and naps. <laughs> um, Peter, I'm going to ask you kind of a similar question, but um, how do you think about taking care of yourself? Seminary is very intense, a lot of reading, a lot of study. How do you take care of yourself in the midst of those demands? Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, and seminary, I found, has been both intellectually demanding and spiritually demanding because a lot of the stuff that uh that we learn you you sort of have to do it as well as learn about it um and so self-care at school is is very important and so um i found that um i found myself praying a lot more at school that wasn't necessarily something that was a big part of my life before seminary and i found that it has been hugely helpful in calming myself and centering myself and being um, and being with God in times that are uh, that have been difficult Go away. <laughs> um, share a little bit about you Peter you mentioned that um, you didn't enjoy going to church and so many of your peers um, I think feel the same way um, what are you sensing from other seminary, seminarians or other millennials? We hear so much about uh, people your age sort of dropping out 
uh, dropping out of church, dropping out of faith, being more spiritual than religious. Um, can you share a little bit about what you're hearing? What do you think the impact is or what's creating that? Um, and finally, do you think there's anything that we as this church can do to help counter that? That's, that's an easy one. Um, yeah, that's, um, there is sort of this phenomenon of a growing number of people, especially around my age and maybe within 10 years of me, who are identifying as spiritual but not religious. And what that means is sort of unclear and ambiguous, but in some way they don't feel like the church... Um, is doing enough for them, I guess. I don't, I don't really know the reasoning behind it, but I also don't think that it's a bad thing. I, uh, I think that responding to this new change in people's, in, in their hearts and their direction of faith is, is a challenge that the church has to take up in the, in the near future. But I don't think that it's a bad thing. I don't think that that spirituality or religion is dying. I think that it's changing, and that'll be that'll be one of the the challenges that the next generation of ministers will have. Um, and I think I'm I'm going to refrain at the moment from giving advice because <laughs> I, I honestly don't don't have any at the moment. I that's something that will hopefully start to become clear. Um, the more that I am, am around this, so. That's fair. <laughs> that was a loaded question. Um, this is for both of you, but let's have Rich go first. Um, what is your thinking about um, Christians who don't seem to think the same way we do, especially in this environment where um, people are using their, their faith, their Christianity, um, to stand up for things that maybe you don't or that you don't uh, interpret the gospel the same way. And so how do you respond as a Christian to other Christians um, who seem so different in their interpretation of the gospel? How do I respond to people of faith who maybe see directions of, of issues in society um, differently than I do. I mean, that has been, in the history of Christianity, always a challenge. And Christianity has always been somewhat political from the very beginning. In fact, for the first 300 years, part of the po politics of Christianity was it could be illegal in the Roman Empire, it was illegal to be a Christian. And Christians have historically advocated and worked for justice and mercy and love in their communities for as long as the church has existed. That naturally leads to different perspectives on how love, mercy, and justice can be achieved. It has certainly led to that and seems to be particularly tense in this day and age. And how then do I respond? Because I meet plenty of persons who are people of faith who do not see the world in the same way as I do. Paul writes that the, the fruits of the Spirit, 
The Spirit is what Christians have. Spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Holy Spirit um, are kindness, mercy, love, justice. He goes on to list some other beautiful qualities. If those are truly, the lens, if, those, if that is the lens through which we see the world, that what we seek to do as a community of faith, as a church, and what other churches seek to do is to seek genuine mercy, inclusion, love of stranger as much as love of neighbor. If that's what we follow, and that's what Jesus asks us to do, then we can see eye to eye. But if people claim that it is God's will that this particular law or should be either enacted or defeated, then people are on very thin ice. If we begin to claim that we know God's will for the outcome of an election, for instance, or God's will that this is what our law should be, then we have moved from being imperfect humans but to people who claim to know the mind of God. And that, by the way, is idolatry and sin. So, I um, am always hesitant when someone will claim this is how and what God wants for our world. Now, I think we need to be prayerful about that, and I do think that God desires, I think, but I don't know, but God desires, if we take Jesus' words seriously and the Apostle Paul's words seriously, that the fruit of our work will be inclusion, it will be love of not just neighbor that we know, but the neighbor who is a stranger. And if it's justice and mercy, and mercy, remember, is doing more than simply what justice requires. If those become the fruit of the Spirit, then people can vote very differently and still go forth faithfully. So, this is a multi-part question, and I think there might be two meanings to this question, but um, it says for Peter, but maybe we'll ask Rich first. <laughs> you guys can decide. The nature of the Holy Trinity, a topic that has, been cultivate, that has cultivated schisms within Christianity for centuries, is a three-part question about the Trinity. One, are Father and Son the same? <laughs> Two, if father and son are not the same, are they equal? And three, if the father and the son are not equal, which reigns supreme? Okay. Well, I think that is really a loaded question by obviously whoever wrote it, that it has maybe less to do with Trinitarian formulaic uh, theology than anything. But I'll, I'll, um, we, we talked briefly. This is the only question that we really mentioned beforehand because it was handed to us before. Before And Meredith said, I might give you a chance to do some mansplaining. I don't want you to mansplain then, she said. And Caroline rolled her eyes and thought, yes, he's going to mansplain about this one. <laughs> Indeed, that has been, believe it or not, a debate for almost since the Trinitarian formula came to, to be used, especially through the third and fourth century, um, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. And there has been a debate which is the most important, or is one the most important? And you may not know this, but that debate over the Holy Spirit versus God and Jesus, Father and Son, is what led to what we now call the Orthodox Church, which has 
400 million adherents to it throughout the world, the Russian, the Greek, um, the Assyrian Orthodox churches, split off about a thousand years ago because they felt the Holy Spirit was diminished in the Trinity compared to God and Jesus. And so it has been a debate, is which is the most important? But I think, from my own standpoint, um, Jesus answers it. Um, Jesus is the one who lifts up God the Spirit, the one who is perfect love, as the ultimate um, of whom we worship. We, we do not necessarily worship, we certainly don't worship the Bible, we worship God. And what happens for us is that Jesus, in his time on earth, becomes God's love incarnate. Incarnation, right? The word we sing and we, we pray of and in flesh, right? He becomes God's love made flesh. But I don't think Jesus ever claims that Jesus is God's equal, but that Jesus is God's presence on earth. And now, since most of us have not physically encountered Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, which has to be just as important as God and Jesus. Peter, this one's for you. I've always wondered, and wonder what you think, if there are angels on earth living among us. Are there angels on earth living amongst us? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I'll sort of answer this in a roundabout way. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I have learned this last semester, um, and something that's been really important to me, is reframing how I look at the world. Um, my, my fundamental beliefs, my core beliefs, haven't changed radically in one semester. But I've started to try and reshape and recognize things in my life that I would otherwise see as mundane or normal. Um, and it was one student that was talking to me about this that said, you know when you get goosebumps when you listen to a song that just really touches you? Like, that, that is the Holy Spirit working in you. And you can easily just look at it as, as something normal and explain it scientifically and say that these goosebumps are a natural thing in your body, but you can also look at it as, as God working in you and, and opening yourself up to the Holy Spirit. And so whether or not there are angels living on earth, I think it depends on sort of how you look at it. Um, people who do random acts of kindness, those could be the angels that, that we're looking for, I guess. Um, and I, I will ask you both this one. Um, Peter, maybe you'll go first. Yeah, I think you talked a little bit about this in your, your opening remarks, but what would you be doing if you weren't in seminary? And what were the alternate paths that you thought about um, as you discerned about going to seminary? Um, yeah, so I mentioned it briefly, but I was a computer science major in college. Um, and so that's, that's what I did for a couple of years. And so 
I guess the answer to that would be I would probably still be in technology if I wasn't at seminary. But I also knew, I remember the weekend before I started my job, I wrote in my journal that I just knew that it wasn't for me, that I, which is kind of bad, but I was, I was going into my job sort of looking for a way out, which, um, and so, so I'm not exactly sure. I, I guess I would still be in technology, but um, I really don't know what, what else I would be doing. And I'll just, we'll finish up with this one, and I've answered this before, but, and, and I know Claire is always disappointed by the mundane response that I have if I weren't in the ministry. She wishes, I'm sure, that I would say that I was like a sailboat captain in the Greek Isles or something that, and, but as, as I've said before, if you know Claire, I would never get to be the captain. Um, but, um, <laughs> um, so I think I might, um, I, I love meteorology. I'm fascinated by meteorology. I could be a meteorologist, and I think that's a good metaphor for the ministry as well because, you know, meteorologists have to take all these factors, all these other variances that are coming in, whether it's barometric pressure, whether it's wind speed, uh, the direction of the wind, a polar vortex, really thousands of, of um, pieces go into making a forecast. And you know what? There are well, like 1,500 variables in the life of our church, right? And one never knows what tomorrow will bring. And so I can't really forecast the weather for our church. But instead, I um, am comfortable with the, uh, the various things that tomorrow will bring. But I wish, I wish I could be a meteorologist and forecast what tomorrow will bring. And maybe that's my, uh, my longing for a sense of, of really completion of tasks. Because in the ministry, very few things are ever fully finished, right? They're ever fully finished. I mean, you have to preach a sermon on Sunday morning. And when you're done, here's what you always think. Oh, I wish I had added something different. So it never feels like it's done. So Meredith will tell you, and the rest of the staff knows, one of my favorite tasks in the ministry, it's not a job, tasks in the ministry is I love to put the mail away. I love to put the mail away because you have a stack of letters, and I put it in everyone's box, and then it's done. <laughs> so I wouldn't be a mailman, per se, but I would probably be in meteorology. But um, thank you for allowing me to not write a sermon this week. But I'm also grateful to Peter and to Caroline and to Meredith for helping to, uh, to lead us in worship. I'm going to tell you this last thing, and then Caroline will lead us in our responsive reading. P Peter, with his self-care, continues to play soccer, and this is, I think, the best. In the Yale Graduate School Soccer League, the Yale Divinity School team won the league this year. That was best. And they were... And here's... Here's who was most mad about it. The Yale Law School and the Yale Management Schools both thought they could never lose to the Divinity School. So we're really, I'm really grateful that, that you guys were able to do that. So, um, but um, let us be called now as we continue in worship. I'm just going to recommend after that remark about Claire that next time we have Ask the Pastor's Wife. 